Here we go. You are listening to Wednesday's Law and Gospel. I'm Pastor Tom Baker on this June the 9th in the year of our Lord 2021. As many of you know, I've talked about this. I'm helping out at four congregations in central Illinois right now. I'm an interim pastor, which means I'm there until they call a pastor. At one of the congregations I was at last Sunday, uh, they put out a kind of a sheet of announcements, and there was a very interesting letter from Ken Sherb. He's a pastor and also the Central Illinois District Administrative Assistant to the President for Missions, Evangelism, Stewardship, and Human Care. I want to read this because I was unaware of this. We stand in awe and praise for the mystery of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Lord who has created, redeemed, and sanctifies us in his mercy and gives us to share in his life. Let us confess and proclaim this to those who don't know this most wonderful truth and pray for them accordingly. We have disconcerting news. Illinois Bill SB 818 passed after a rather quick debate and its Senate version quickly passed through the House. It now anticipates Governor Pritzker's signature and he has indicated he would sign it. The bill requires Illinois public school districts to teach a thoroughly unnatural and ungodly curriculum for sex education. A school district must teach this curriculum or no such curriculum at all. Lutheran and other parochial schools are exempt from the requirement, thanks be to God. However, many children from your congregation can now quite possibly be exposed to this hideous material. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. What to do now? Call Governor Pritzker to let him know what God expects of civic rulers and pray he will not sign this. In the event he does, address your local school board and ask them to opt out of the state's sex ed program. And then it's in Christ, Ken Shurb. So, I kind of took a look as to what this sex program is going to be talking about. It definitely defends homosexual lifestyles, has no problem with abortion, and also deals with the fact that two persons of the same gender can get married. Now, fortunately, parochial schools in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, 
are exempt from teaching this godly or ungodly nonsense. But your own public school is going to be forced to teach that unless a number of you get in touch with your boards of education and remove these items from the school curriculum. There's no doubt that these items are contrary to the will of God. And as Ken Sure clearly says, that they are going to be items that are contrary to God's holy word. You see, one of the reasons they're thinking of doing this is because of the high suicide rate of those who are gay. But they don't realize that that is a natural outcome when somebody goes against the will of God. It's like women who have had an abortion, and we're going to be talking more about that on tomorrow's Law and Gospel with Wes Reimnitz, that after some time after the abortion, they begin to feel very guilty because they have murdered their baby. It's really something that God builds in to creation. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve? They sinned by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And before God met with them, they tried to hide from him as though you can hide from God, which is ridiculous because he's omnipresent. But they realized that he would be angry with them. And see, that's what every religion attempts to do is to minimize God's anger. We're living in a society right now where there are two classes of people The one class of people are those who feel they have been victimized. And the other class of people are those who are doing those kinds of persecutions. This is so utterly nonsense because it doesn't matter what color you are, what nationality you are, what religion you are you will feel victimized. There's always something there. But we're dealing now with a Marxist understanding. In the original Marxism, what it was, was on the basis of money, that farmers had more money than the workers, and so communism attempted to equal it out. It was a total disaster with millions of people being put to death. We we saw that also in Nazi Germany, where they were also totally against a certain nationality, and that was, of course, the Jewish population. But there were others included in that, such as those who were gay, etc. While we believe that is contrary to have an immoral lifestyle, we do not believe that the government should put people to death 
because of that immoral lifestyle, such as homosexuality, etc. But at this time, we do not want our children to be being taught this immoral lifestyle. It's kind of interesting that it was the Democrats who made sure that this was adopted in a very quick vote. And so if enough schools opt out of sex education, then they don't have to teach this unbiblical teaching. But if they want to teach some kind of sex education, then they must follow the guidelines. Here's a government, just like Nazi Germany, telling people what they must believe even though it is contrary to particularly religious views, not just of Christians, but of Muslims and others. So I hope that Ken Sherb's letter that talks about Illinois Bill 818 will be something that many of you will take notice of and attempt to minimize the harm to our children. And the age of children that are going to be taught this new curriculum is from kindergarten through grade 12. How sad. All right, let's go to an email. Are those who die prior to Jesus' death on the cross saved? I understand we are not saved because of faith. Now, that's the beginning of an email letter, and I want to stop there because there's no doubt that you cannot look at your faith and say, I'm saved because I have faith. That would be bragging. That would be saying that faith is a work you do. You're saved because of the work that Jesus Christ did in dying on the cross. So the email writer goes on with the question about those who died prior to Jesus' death, are they saved? And quotes from John chapter 9. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So after quoting that, the email writer continues, I'm wondering if someone in a false religion, such as Islam or LDS, would not be guilty of sin because they are blind. I mean, for example, my husband was raised in Islam, so in a sense, it is all he knows. And my best friend, who is in her 40s, has become a member of the LDS Church, Latter-day Saints. 
since she was a teenager. They are both in false religions, but they are not the teachers or prophets of those religions. When I have spoken with them about their faith, I get no understanding that they can even see or understand the error of their religions. Those religions are their complete worldview, yet they believe they worship the same God I worship. Thank you for any insight you might be able to provide. Then it's signed by the email writer. Well, the way we understand passages in the scripture is with that wonderful Reformation principle, and I've said this a thousand times, scripture interprets scripture. What's John chapter 9 about? It's about a man who was born blind, and he's begging for money. Jesus stops to talk to him and tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash his eyes with that water, and he will be able to see. So he goes to the pool, he follows what Jesus says, and he can see. I've often wondered how they would make a film out of this. The man is blind, and Jesus has put some mud on his eyes, and so he's walking, and let's say his name is Tom, and they say, Tom, where are you going? And he talks about that this man, he told me to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. I mean, that sounds kind of ridiculous. But then he sees. After he sees, he meets Jesus again. And he confesses, as Jesus tells him, that Jesus is the Christ. And it is at that point that Jesus said to the Pharisees who were there, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see. And of course, this man was born blind, and he now sees. And those who see will become blind. Now the Pharisees asked him, what are we blind to? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. What's Jesus talking about? What is it that the Pharisees say they can see but remain guilty? Remember the Pharisees have prayers such as, thank God I'm not like that tax collector because I do this, I do that. And they name ceremonial laws. Uh, such as fasting and tithing, etc. They look at these ceremonial laws as the way that they are saving themselves. So they think they can see the way of salvation. But a person who is considered blind by God has no understanding of how he can be saved. 
He's blind in that area until he hears the message of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for his sins. So the people who think they see but are blind would be those of false religions such as Islam or LDS. When these people are spoken to, they may not be the teachers of that religion, but they don't see at all the understanding of the error of their religion. So from God's point of view, they think they can see. They even go to the point, we believe that we worship the same God as you do in Christianity. They see that which is wrong, which means they are blind. And so my advice to this email writer, what do you do in order to help the blind see? You share with them the message of Jesus Christ, how he came and died on the cross. And that's really, really important. And let the Holy Spirit create faith that now moves them from blindness to being able to see properly. That's what long gospel is all about. Another email. Dear Pastor Tom Baker, I am intrigued at the distinction of law and gospel and find your show really helpful. Thank you. I am from Australia. I am also enjoying reading Luther's sermons. I have just heard your talk on Psalm 119. I would love to hear you discuss the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps you can tell me what date that might be in. It would also be helpful in recommending certain discussions to others. Thanks again and kind regards from Australia. I love listening to KFUO and have told others here about your program. And he signs it from California. I'm sorry, from Australia. <laughs> All right. He wants to know a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon Jesus gave. And if Jesus gave it, then it must have law and gospel in it. What is the law of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, there were people in those days, like Pharisees, who felt they had never committed the act of murder. And so they felt they were safe from God's wrath. What, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? I tell you that those who have said something wrong about someone or have thought wrong ideas about someone sinfully, that that is also given the punishment of eternal damnation. God makes no distinction between sins of thought, word, and deed. 
because since the time of Adam and Eve, we are born, we have inherited sin, and therefore we cannot think the way God wants us to think. We cannot say what God wants us to say because we are very, very selfish. And a lot of times our words, our deeds, and our thoughts are contrary to the will of God. But then where is the gospel in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he has become your substitute in taking upon himself the punishment for your sins. And therefore, that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It accuses all of us of breaking every commandment, if not by deed, then by thought and by word. But then it gives us the good news that he has come to fulfill the law for us and then to give us the righteousness that even Abraham received in the Old Testament by believing the promises of God. Another email. In Romans 12.3, it says, For I say that through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. The email writer, what does it mean by a measure of faith? Do some people have more faith than others? If so, how does one attain more faith? Now, that question is based on thinking that a measure of faith is really talking about the quantity of faith. I believe that the measure of faith is such that a person can practice whatever measure of faith he has received in his vocation, in doing what God wants him to do. For example, in my own situation, I can be considered as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a pastor, as a citizen, and we can just go on and on. And in some areas, I have been given faith, such as being a pastor, to help elucidate what the scripture is saying. But in other areas, I don't have a measure of faith to be able to achieve what others do. In fact, I have no problems thinking of a shut-in who is in bed, unable to even walk hardly, but because of her faith, she's praying for her relatives. She's maybe making phone calls to them and comforting them. 
one could say that she has a greater measure of faith to do those things than I might. It's not that I don't try and comfort or phone people, but it's usually because they have first contacted me. So how does one attain more faith? Now, that's a different question than about the measure of faith. More faith means that we trust the promises of God more than we did yesterday. For example, at a funeral, and that's one of my favorite places of preaching, because often I will have people in the congregation, in the pews, during the funeral, who have never heard the message of law and gospel. And they're afraid that when they die, they will not go to heaven. So we take the opportunity to share the message that yes, the person who is in the coffin before us was a sinner and she or he admitted their sin but they looked to Jesus for salvation, not because they did so many good works or they had such great faith, but because they trusted the promises of the gospel. And that's really what Christianity is all about, to get people to so believe the gospel that their faith increases and they are more comforted no matter what they are enduring. I'm Tom Baker, and you've been listening to Wednesday's Law and Gospel. Tomorrow, we're gonna have a very interesting discussion with Wes Reimnitz, as we usually do, and we ask you to tune in about 9.30 to hear that discussion. Until then, I'm Tom Baker. God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.